So obviously we live in an entangled world in which the local, regional, national and global are interconnected through intri intricate networks and loops of exchange. The analysis of the multidirectional movement of people, languages, ideas, knowledge and things requires innovative methodological perspectives that are capable of capturing all kinds of spatial and temporal practices. So transnationalism is often associated with an emancipatory politics of resistance, as for example manifest in hybrid or creolized communities, which can of course engender forms of agency that deterritorialize de the nation state. On the other hand, however, the history of transnational exchange and contact also includes the history of empires, warfare, colonization, slavery, and of course, all of these issues have come to the fore in the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the recent debate about memorials in the public space. So in the light of the tension uh, between these two poles, kind of an emancipatory pole on the one hand and a problematic history of colonization, uh, exploitation and, and slavery and the history of Western modernity, we have um, actually come together to explore how the idea of transnationalization should and can affect our different subject perspectives. And this is the uh, raison d'etre for the research strand and also the point of departure um, uh, for uh, today's webinar, which as I already said, is entitled Transnationalizing the Humanities, Research Perspectives, Approaches and Methodologies. So this morning we have um, two panels which focus on the transnationalization of literature in the main. Uh, from a variety of, of, of perspectives. And we also have a keynote by Professor Re Rebecca Brown from Lancaster University. Rebecca, will you wave at us? <laughs> Hi. Uh, and I will, I will introduce her later on. We also have some internal attendees and external guests, including the Kenyan ambassador. Uh, His Excellency Michael Mubia and Dr. Irene Sinai, the Minister of Culture, Gender and Youth Affairs from Samburi County in Kenya, and Dr. Linda Nkatha of the School of Architecture at the University of Nairobi, and they will join us for the architecture panel in the afternoon. And of course, we have colleagues from within UCD and other institutions in Ireland. So you're all very welcome uh, to today's proceedings. I'm sure you're all acquainted by, uh, acqu acquainted with uh, webinar um, protocols, but let me run through them once more just to avoid, um, well, miscommunication. So all presenters and panel chairs can of course ask their questions verbally. However, external attendees and guests should use the chat function to raise their questions, okay? So you can use the chat function, the chair will have a look at them and, 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 and pick your questions. This webinar will be recorded and it will be edited and published on the um, uh, HI website as a podcast. So be aware of that, yeah? Um, 
I would uh, please ask you to mute yourselves when you're not speaking because um, this is not the full conference package, but the smaller format. So any kind of noise interferes. So please remember to mute yourselves when you're not speaking. And could you please put your phones on silent? Sometimes they ring off and it's not uh, uh, very good for the recording. Our chairs have been instructed to keep to the time limit. And of course, those who present too. Uh, we will therefore not introduce speakers lengthily as this will take up too much time. And it's now 9.27, which means that I've kept to my time. Yeah? And uh, it means that I can now hand over to uh, Regina Ikulohoin, the head of School of Irish, Celtic Studies and Folklore, who will be chairing the uh, first session. So I'm going to go on mute. Regina, could you please uh, take over at this point? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and just to continue in the mode of uh, the getting everything done in a timely manner, uh, I will immediately proceed if that's okay. And uh, our first session today is, um, I'm delighted to uh, introduce Julian Pye, Enrica Ferrara, and Anne Fuchs, and a very uh, brief introduction, although I could speak about these three people at length because they are wonderful scholars, all of them very established and very accomplished in their own uh, field. To start with Gillian, uh, her work focuses on 20th century German literature and society, and especially interested in prose literature since the fall of the wall and contemporary women writers. Uh, her most recent work applied anthropological theories of material culture to the analysis of German language language prose of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, and her current work on well-being and happiness seems, seeks to address the disciplinary divide that attends happiness studies, something I think very topical in today's times and us uh, on the COVID. Uh, one of her, uh, she has a number of publications, maybe just the most um, prominent in the context of her monograph, uh, The Approaches to Comedy in German Drama. Okay, Gillian, I'll let you start then so. Good morning to everybody from a rather soggy Dublin 7, but it looks like it's brightening up now. Um, so this is a paper about happiness, and it begins with the observation that literary studies have been a bit slow to address this issue, even though since at least the end of the 1990s, it's been topping research agendas in other fields and is infiltrating, I think we would agree, every aspect of our lives. Not happiness, but suffering and melancholy are the bread and butter of literature, and it's not without reason. In many ways, happiness doesn't lend itself to interesting plots or complex figures. However, when employers are plowing funds into wellness initiatives, when governments worldwide are monitoring happiness indexes, and when schools are teaching happiness to our kids, I think it's time to ask some questions. And I argue that literature might have some interesting answers. One of the difficulties of working critically with happiness, and this is the problem that I want to address in this presentation today, is the slippage between the universal and the particular. For the longest time, thinkers have been concerned with what makes a good and satisfying life. And it seems that this is a universal preoccupation for human beings. But it goes without saying that the way positive emotion is lived, the way it's named, the way it's valued is constantly shifting. The advent of modernity can be understood in terms of the increasing prominence of emotion. And it's at this point that individual happiness comes into focus as a personal life goal. At the same time, it's anything but a private matter. The legitimacy of the pursuit of happiness is hardwired into modern nationhood, 
Jeremy Bentham's maxim of the greatest happiness for the greatest number, or the Republican proclamation of individual happiness as a human right in revolutionary France or the USA, underline the self-image of the nation as the space in which positive individual experience ought to flourish. Moreover, the nation has maintained itself precisely through the deployment of emotional regimes, which instrumentalize an individual desire for joy and positive experience. As Rob Bodis argues, the idea of the soldier who is happy to join up to defend the fatherland suggests why this most basic of human emotions must be thought of within its social, historical and cultural context. In this case, to fight is to defend the good of the nation, tying a sense of personal happiness with the future happiness of one's compatriots. To refuse is to experience personal ignominy and shame, risking the well-being of all. The individual emotion is therefore both the carrot and the stick, and far from being subjectively defined, it is performative and relational. Sarah Ahmed talks about the promise of happiness. We pursue the hope of positive emotion, but the route is circular. We tend to look for happiness where we expect to find it. If happiness is central to modern nationhood, then a defining feature of the turn to the 21st century has been its increasing prominence as a powerful transnational script, which appears to naturalize connections between the individual, the national and the global, all the while seeming to preserve the sovereignty of the self. Key to this is the claim that it's possible to objectively measure happiness, usually in the form of subjective well-being, which is defined as a combination of positive affect and general life satisfaction. Social well-being is based on the self-reports of individuals and is fed into broader measures of social performance, all the better to draw comparisons across national boundaries. Interestingly, the reports and indexes fed by this data are still labelled with the term happiness. Language is important, and it seems this term and its equivalents in other languages, Glück in German, for example, remains the word of choice when scientists and writers want to engage the attention and emotional investment of their audiences. Developing out of positive psychology, the objective measurement of social well-being is an important step in the transnationalization of happiness. All human beings should have the possibility to flourish, and few would argue with this. But when translated into subjective well-being data, this universal human right becomes the abstract stuff of global accounting and human capital. In 2011, the year in which the first World Happiness Report was published, the documentary film The Economics of Happiness set out to tackle this issue. It argued that globalization makes us unhappy because it destroys local communities, pollutes the planet, and homogenizes culture. Again, Unless you're a very special kind of world leader, it's hard to argue that threats like climate change are anything other than global tragedies. However, although their intentions are good, the filmmakers become caught in the transnational happiness trap. They argue, for example, that a once happy subsistence community has become unhappy by the incursion of global commerce in the local environment. And again, what's striking is not the problem that globalization creates unfortunate absurdities, such as the local products abandoned in favour of inferior imported goods. Rather, what's interesting to me here is the way in which an emotional regime is co-opted into the argument. Although the filmmakers are criticising the abstract idea of well-being as a performance indicator, their argument uses the same terms. It identifies the pursuit of happiness as the emotional common denominator, which unites individuals across the globe. Again, this is not to argue that we should ignore the suffering of others. But what we see here is transnational happiness operating as a reductive and somewhat tautological emotional regime. The filmmakers fall foul of the promise of happiness. They identify happiness where they expected to find it, in the old binary of the happy native versus the unhappy urban individual. 
And secondly, their argument exposes the mechanism of the promise of happiness, that although it appears as an individual experience which we all seek for ourselves, it exists only relationally and in a process of ascription. Hence, Westerners are constructed as citizens of nations that erroneously identify themselves as happy when in fact they ought to acknowledge their own unhappiness and also their responsibility for the happiness of others. Although this does point to the fact that you can't buy happiness, and although it acknowledges that there are alternative ways of experiencing happiness, it nevertheless relies on a faulty logic. The problem is that it operates on the understanding that happiness is a promise worth pursuing, and that the pursuit of this problem lies with the individual with whom emotional choice must rest. Ultimately, therefore, it can be argued that this reinforces the logic it seeks to overturn. What's missing is an understanding of how individual experience is impacted by the idea of happiness, both as a universal human right, but also as an abstract value, which lends itself to global exchange. What is missing is uh, an understanding of how such ideas, which are often indistinguishable from one another at first glance, actually operate in particular local and personal contexts. We can't stand outside the concept of happiness and simply decide on it for ourselves, for like the filmmakers, we're entangled in a web whose threads run far beyond us. However, given the importance of language in the creation and maintenance of emotional regimes and the significance of self-narration and evaluation to the idea of subjective well-being, the contemporary novel can, I argue, illuminate the entanglement I've been trying to describe. In the last two minutes, I want to just give some very brief general observations based on my reading, which perhaps point up some sites of entanglement relating to happiness, which would merit further exploration. And there are lots more than what I'm going to say now, of course. The first is that the assumption of happiness as a universal personal goal can be illuminated in transgenerational perspective. In contemporary generational novels, such as Peggy Medler's Die Legende vom Glück des Menschen, trying to imagine what happiness may have felt like for another across a historical and political divide, and also to understand what bearing this might have on the way we feel in the present, forces a reckoning with the historical, cultural, and political specificity of the concept. And moreover, this can denaturalize emotional regimes at work in the present. Not least, the very attempt to empathize with another's happiness must be understood in the context of a contemporary culture in which happiness circulates as an abstract value. The second example is that novels that focus on well-being as part of a neoliberal globalized performance culture can reveal the local impact of transnational concepts of happiness, when what appears to be concern for individual well-being turns out to be the opposite. A text like Thomas Sautner's Der Glücksmacher, for example, satirizes the assimilation of localized happiness scripts into the abstract structures of neoliberal well-being using far three. Some novels can challenge the constraints of contemporary happiness discourses. Retrospective narratives assessing a life story can offer a way of exploring happiness as performance and narrative. For example, Niall Williams's figure Christie in the novel This Is Happiness plays with the sequencing of the promise of happiness. His strategy is to declare at random moments, this is happiness, challenging the listener to supply the narrative to fit the claim. Narratives featuring elderly people particularly those living with dementia, can also challenge the limits of happiness in the case when a person loses the capacity to articulate their own life narrative. A text such as Arno Geiger's Der Alte König in seinem Exil, for example, explores a father-son relationship and the attempt to maintain asymmetrical experiences of happiness by crossing back and forth between the fictional and the real. 
I think that's probably all I have time for today. There would be lots more examples I think we could talk about, but I hope it gives some insight into a transnational dimension of my rather slow burning ongoing project. Thank you. Thank you, Gillian. That was a wonderful, wonderful presentation and a great start to the day. Thank you. Um, I'm very conscious of the time as well, but you very ably kept to it and thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm just thinking that maybe in the context of the speaks and I see the, the reactions going up, um, that maybe if uh, when there's about roughly about two minutes to go to the end, if I'm concerned that we're, we're, we're tied for time, I might just put up a thumbs up to the speaker if that's okay. I won't do it unless it's just that we're a little bit tied or whatever, and it usually isn't to do with the speaker. It's usually to do with something that is uh, that, that we're, we're pressing or I'm getting a, a message somewhere that, that something needs to, to speed up. On that note, I need to speed up myself. And our next speaker is um, Enrica Ferrara. And a very brief introduction again, as I said, uh, Enrica has worked as a researcher and lecturer of Italian culture in Trinity College Dublin from 2008 as part of her postdoctoral research fellowship uh, on a project on the intersection of performance and narrative in 20th century Italian literature. She has published two monographs on internationally acclaimed 20th century author Italo, uh, Italo Calvino, a third monograph exploring theatrical realism in the work of uh, Italo Calvino and Pier Paolo Pasolino and Elio Vittorino was published in 2014. And uh, my Italian is not, not good. Very good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, her latest publication is a collection of essays by various international scholars on the interaction between page and stage. And her forthcoming publication in the area of post-humanism is an edited volume titled Post-Humanism in Italian Literature and Film Boundaries and Identity. And today she will talk about building nomadic subjects, national and transnational concepts of identity uh, in Giuseppe Ungaretti's poetry. Okay. Thank you, Regina. Thank you very much for this introduction. Um, I am going to share now my um, presentation. So this paper on Giuseppe Ungaretti's poetry spun off from my research on posthumanism in Italian literature and film, as I was invited by two scholars, Codioli and Vanderberg, to uh, contribute to their edited volume that focuses specifically on posthumanist modernism. Their book, not this one, this is my book, will be published by Brill in 2021. Now, the topic of identity is central to my recent research that's explored how human subjects have been renegotiating their identity with other entities, such as non-human animals, the environment, and technological artifacts over the past two centuries. Even though posthumanist theories have emerged in the humanities from the late 1970s, a plethora of studies, including my own, have demonstrated that literary attention to the agency of the known human and the role of such agencies on the identity building of the human can be dated all the way back to the middle of the 19th century, in and around the time of dissemination of Darwin's theories of evolution. Further on, the two world conflicts, which were unprecedented for their scale and deployment of technologically advanced machinery, provided the concrete opportunity during which humans were forced face to face with human and non-human others in traumatic circumstances with, which caused them to rethink their identity, both as singular entities and as collective ones, the nations. In particular, World War I, the time in which Ungaretti started his poetic apprenticeship, called for migrants and expats to redefine their identities based on patriotic and nationalistic narratives. 
data gathered by historians talk about millions of soldiers migrating across Europe from the colonies to support the war or efforts of their homelands. In many cases, young soldiers went to fight for own countries they had never set their foot in. This caused a feeling of ambivalence in the soldiers between migrant transnational identity and the national identity they were asked to perform. Ungaretti was one of the soldiers, and this experience may therefore be considered emblematic. In Ungaretti's poetry of World War I, this ambivalence comes through on a thematic level as a tension between Italian nationalism and multi-ethnic cosmopolitanism, pro-fascist celebration of war and the modernization of its horrors. On a stylistic level, this is mirrored by an oscillation between avant-garde experimentalism and traditionalism. In this paper, I adopt Braidotti's theory of the nomadic subject to demonstrate that the seemingly contradictory attitudes are consistent with both the development of Ungaretti's notion of a posthuman transversal subject and his creation of a transnational identity overcoming boundaries of ethnicity, language, and place. Nomadism does as an embracing of alternative identities that allows the patriarchic Italianness to coexist with cosmopolitanism advocated by the poet. Ungaretti himself supports nomadism as an existential and ethical position of his humanism. Interestingly, the paradigm of the nomad emerges in modernism simultaneously with the hybrid figuration of the cyborg, first conceptualized by the futurists. Both may be seen as productive constructs of, I quote Pradotti, interrelationality, the work to challenge categorical distinctions or as Donna Haraway calls them, places of liminal transformation, stressing the impact of creativity in the thinking process. Born in Egypt in 1888, son of Tuscan migrants, Ungaretti was raised in a cosmopolitan environment. He spoke Italian, but also wrote in French, translated American, English, and Portuguese poets. He definitely fits Braidotti's description of the nomad as a multicultural polyglot defined by their in-between status and able to, I quote, trace alternative process of becoming in an affirmative manner, end of quote. Before moving to Italy in 1914, Ungaretti befriended members of the Italian futurist avant-garde. He looked at French symbolists and Italian traditional poets like Leopardi as an inspiration. He was also fascinated by Bergson uh, intuitionism and Spinozian monism. Ungaretti's nomadism is expressed in several um, poems of the Borgate Port, his first collection of poems. Of course, I can touch only on a few, um, in fact, two of them. Um, so not only through representation of the lyrical subject as possessing attributes and qualities that belong to the nomad, like sense of direction, heightened senses, resilience, but also by a nomadic approach to reality that enables Ungaretti to connect, and I quote from Raidotti again, with non-human or earth others and break the boundaries of human singularity. This post-humanist approach leads the lyrical subject to acquire a sense of shared vulnerability which blurs the margins between human and non-human and subsequently embrace interconnectedness with other humans beyond ethnicity or race. And here think about also Anne's concept of precariousness. For example, in the Destina, written on July uh, 14, 1916, the human destiny as one of shared vulnerability with other species is strongly emphasized. Here, as the human body has become a thread, a fibra, participating in the same nature of all created matter, equally its voice is devoid of linguistic signification and reduced to pure crying sound. 
a moon, which posits an immediate connection between humans and other species. These are recurrent images now in Ungaretti's poetry. On the one hand, Ungaretti's osmosis with nature may be traced back to Bergson's duration, as subject and object coexist in fluid entanglement with the indivisible time of our consciousness. On the other hand, Spinozian monism, embracing the concept of matter as unitary and self-organizing, allows Ungaretti to overcome the dialectical scheme of oppositional dualism. Objects are not just others in relation to subjects, but they're part of the same living flow of matter, which differentiates internally. Shared vulnerability is rooted in matter and is relieved through what Gradotti calls nomadic memories. Now, these memories are memories of oppression, pain, and death, which nomadic subjects shares with each other and with non-human others. In the wake of Bergson and Deleuze's legacy, Braidotti's nomadic memory implies that past is always relived, but not in a mournful mode of pasted repetition, but rather as actualization of it in the here and now with heightened intensity. In order to understand this transformational life-affirming power of nomadic memories of grief and loss, we have to turn to Spinozian monism, of course, with its notion of desire as a fundamental drive empowering universal matter to become and differentiate. The memory of death and its imminence within life are a powerful motor to affirmation and change. And this is what Ungaretti describes in his famous poem, Irifilmi, Rivers, an account of identity building from the point of view of the here and now, as the poet sees himself immersed in the river Isonzo, where most of the bloody battles between Italian and Austrian troops are fought during World War I. As he lies down on the riverbed, the poet experiences a deep encounter with Bradotti's life-death continuum. The water is described as an urn in which the soldier's body is compared to a relic. The sainthood implied by the term relic serves to warrant credibility to this account of a liminal, barely alive state in which the lyric eye manages to escape individuation and singularity through panic immersion into nature, thanks to which, as already observed in the other poem, Destiny, he recognizes himself as one of many threads of the universe. This is the Isonzo, and here better recognize myself as docile thread of the universe. Now, this is a crucial passage. Only through deep, deep awareness of his interconnectedness with non-human others, the poet is able to activate the process of nomadic memory described in the second part of the poem, to which I go now, which enables the construction of a life-affirming transnational subject. From the urn of the Isonzo river, the poet is able to actualize the past stages of his life in the here and now by rethinking the other identities in the shape of the rivers that flow through the countries in which he spent his life. So he names the Serchio for his Italian identity, the Nile for his Egyptian one, and the Seine for his French identity, all of which have a dedicated stanza accounting for the particular role that each cultural encounter had in Ungaretti's identity formation. The convergence of this legacy in the present time is reinforced through the powerful metaphor of the water, a connecting element which binds and merges the individual stages of life in harmonious unity. What matters is that all the rivers flow into the Isonzo, the river of war, the spatial temporal point in which the subject dissolves and the poet becomes imperceptible, a quote again from Gaidotti, as he experiences the life-death continuum. In conclusion, 
The emergence of Ungaretti's new posthuman and transnational subject requires a solid faith in the psychological time of duration as the creative space in which past and present interact with each other nomadically. Thank you. Thank you, Enrique. That was wonderful. Uh, another uh, very insightful piece and uh, we will look forward to the discussion afterwards. Um, I'm looking forward to plenty of questions. I know there's, there's uh, lots of very interesting concepts coming to light in these two talks already. We move on now to uh, Professor Anne Fuchs and uh, Anne of course uh, needs probably no introduction as the person who introduced us all this morning and is the reason that we're all here. So thank you for that Anne. And uh, just to maybe note that as my, to take this opportunity to thank you for all your work on this and uh, to, to, for bringing us together. Uh, Anne is the Professor of Modern German Literature and Culture at, at, at UCD, where she co-founded the UCD Humanities Institute in 2002, funded by the Programme for Research in Third Level Institutions in Ireland. She was Principal Investigator of the five-year research programme German Memory Contest since 1945, funded by PRTLI, and uh, publications of which there are many, include uh, the monograph Phantoms of War in Contemporary German Literature, Films and Discourse, uh, which won the Choice Outstanding Title Award in the United States in 2009. Um, it's hard to pick out one or two in, in Anne's um, uh, resume. Uh, the UCD Award of Senior Fellowship in 2010 helped her to complete her monograph after the Dresden bombing, Pathways of Memory, um, 1945 to present in 2012. She accepted the Chair and Professorship of German at the University of St. Andrews before moving to the University of War Warwick in 2012, where she was Professor of German studies and director of research until September 2016 and when she returned to uh, UCD in October 2016 to the directorship of the UCD Humanities Institute and to finalize she is a member of the Royal Irish Academy and was elected a fellow of the British Academy in 2014. Look forward to your paper today Anne and um, transnational dystopias or why the future is no longer an open horizon. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, detailed uh, introduction. Okay, I'll start sh straight away. Yulitze's dystopian 2017 novel Empty Hearts imagines life in post-democratic Germany and Europe. The concerned citizens movement has taken over from Angela Merkel, who was forced to leave the political stage eight years previously. Modeled on various current right-wing movements, the BBB is a democratically elected party that, on its journey to power, successfully exploited the electorate's widespread political apathy. Besides introducing a basic income for all to keep protest at bay, the ruling party has launched various packages which in the name of economic efficiency have already massively curtailed civil rights and undermined central democratic institutions. For example, the newly established federal agency for lead culture oversees the government's identitarian politics Arabic tea rooms have been closed down and the Quran has been banned from bookshops. On the European stage, Frexit and Spexit sound the imminent death knell for the EU. We can glean from this that the dystopian setting in Tse's novel unfolds in the very near future. Set in the mid 2020s, this dystopia is merely a stone's throw away from our own era, magnifying contemporary political trends. 
With its near future setting, Empty Hearts is just one example of a recent wave of dystopian fiction which explores post-democratic and post-truth societies. Other examples include Preya Akbar's Leila, which is set in the two, 2040s in post-democratic India, Michel Welbeck's uh, controversial Soumission, which depicts France controlled by radical Islamists, and Vladimir Sorokin's Day of the Oprinich, which is set in Russia in the near future after the restoration of the Tsardom. Max Anna's novel Finsterwalde imagines the rounding up of German citizens from a non-white background who are then incarcerated in a camp in, e in the East German town Finsterwalde. Juan Guse's Clamor and Forest is set in a heavily protected gated community outside Buenos Aires where the inhabitants are prepping for imminent social upheavals and environmental disaster. However, in my view, the most interesting recent German language text exploring the imminence of post-democratic society is without doubt Sibylle Berg's Grime Brainfuck, that's the title, published in 2019. Set in a post-Brexit and post-monarchy Great Britain and after the demise of the EU, Berg's text is in substance and tone the single most dystopic narrative of recent times. Her astute analysis of the political effects of artificial intelligence and emerging surveillance technology focuses on the gradual but systemic erosion of political agency and participation. Recent dystopian fiction thus creates scenarios that have transnational relevance. Besides exploring the effects of AI and robotics, it thematizes environmental catastrophes, the rise of chauvinistic ethno-nationalism, religious fanaticism, racism, and misogyny. The genre articulates and magnifies fears which, even though they might be expressed in a national vernacular, have global resonance. However, one could argue that up to a point, these themes have always been the domain of dystopian fiction, as underlined by the 20th century classics of the genre, such as Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World, or Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Before discussing the most striking feature that distinguishes the contemporary dystopian narrative from the classical variant, I want to briefly touch on dystopian fiction as a genre. So what characterizes dystopian literature? Dystopian fiction is, as Tom Moylan has argued, the product of the terrors of the 20th century. On the other hand, it is bound up in the debate about utopian thought spanning Western philosophical thought from Plato to Thomas More up to Ernst Bloch and so on. While its literary roots lie in the Manip Manipian satire, dystopic fiction is a hybrid genre overlapping with science fiction and environmental fiction. Raffaella Bacolini and Tom Moylan have introduced the notion of critical dystopia for a body of self-reflexive texts which negotiate the necessary pessimism of the generic dystopia with an open militant utopian stance. The narr narratological debate in dystopian fiction has focused on Darko Suvin's idea of cognitive estrangement, which he coined in analogy to Brecht's alienation effect to capture the former characteristics of science fiction. For Suvin, SF imagines a radically alternative reality, but unlike fantasy, science fiction develops it with quasi-scientific rigor. 
Suvin argues that this is achieved by means of the fictional novum, which is generated through the feedback loop between the authors and implied readers' norms of reality and the normatively actualized novum in the text. Suvin's idea of cognitive estrangement has become a central reference point for dystopian fiction, which is seen to engage the reader in totalizing thought experiments or scenarios at a remove from the here and now. Typically, the dystopian world is the outcome of a cataclysmic event that occurred in the past. The intradiegetic dystopian present is thus cut off from a radically different past, which in the world of the text is either vaguely remembered as a mythical past or completely forgotten or repressed. And this creates the following temporal displacement. While the intradiegetic present is a projection of the reader's possible extradiegetic future, the intradiegetic past coincides with the reader's extradiegetic present. John Lancaster's The Wall would be an example of this temporality. The novel is set sometime in the future in a dystopian Britain after a non-specified catas catastrophic event that the narrator refers to as the change. The time before the change is a matter of mythical speculation in the novel. And this is precisely the point of comparison and contrast with the type of contemporary dystopian fiction as discussed in my introductory remarks. The intradiegetic present in Says, Berg's and Goose's novels is no longer separated by a cataclysmic event from the reader's extradiegetic present. In fact, the intradiegetic present in all three texts appears merely as a plausible extension of the reader's present. Furthermore, there is no indication of a fictional novum in Suvin's sense. Because there is no big change, as in Lancaster's The Wall, the gap between the reader's norms of reality and the reality in the text has shrunk to such an extent that the feedback loop between the two is foreshortened. By suspending the convention of separating the fictional dystopic future from the reader's non-fictional present, the contemporary variant under discussion thus creates a presentist dystopia, which locks the reader into an incrementally unfolding bad present without a future horizon. While cognitive estrangement in science fiction invites the reader to examine the contemporary world from the alienating perspective of a distant future, this literature is presentist in Francois Artaud's sense. It envelops its characters and readers in an extended dystopian present that is bereft of both the past and the future as horizons of orientation. What this means then is that the dystopic force of this fiction derives not only from the technological or surveillance imaginaries, but also from its disavowal of the modern order of time and the temporalization of history since the 18th century. As Reinhard Koselleck has shown, the idea of progress emerged in the Enlightenment period as an instrument of historical acceleration. Once the difference between the past, the present, and the future was brought into view, the future became the horizon of urgent human planning. And so it is that modern man inhabited a dynamic and transitory present that reached into a radically new future. 
the modern orientation towards the future forged a strong alliance between modern time and progress. So to conclude, the most radical examples of the contemporary dystopian novel deny this particular modern conception of time. Instead of envisaging a radically dystopian future, which is separated from the present, they moor the reader in an atrophied present in which action and movement are divorced from the idea of an open future. And that's all I have to say for now. Thank you. Wonderful paper. Thank you very much, Anne. Really interesting. And um, I'm sure I'm conscious of time, but we are very much within the time. And I'd like to thank our three speakers for keeping so well to the time. Um, I'm just going to open the forum now for any questions and people can either raise their hand. Now I can see about one, two, three, I can see about 25 people on screen and I'm conscious that there's 31 here. So um, if not, maybe if you could send me a message on the chat um, if I don't see your hand. But um, if, if there are any questions, I'm, I'm opening it now to the floor. We have a few minutes. We have about uh, six or seven minutes if, if uh, people have questions. Uh, Anne. Yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, I have a question for, for Gillian. First of all, I think it's, it's a kind of a, a nice match between our papers because of your interest in happiness and my interest in unhappiness. Uh, I <laughs> um, and I would perhaps, two, two points. I would say that the prop, I mean, I think literature is deeply invested in unhappiness because mm. happiness is always a category that cannot be sustained in any way. And if it is sustained in the literary text, it becomes kitsch. So one, you know, I think one could make the point that with, with, you know, all sorts of thinkers from Benjamin to others, that actually happiness can only be kind of a utopian flash that can never be articulated in the text. So how are you dealing with that in your analysis of literary representations of or performances of, I should say, happiness? As ever, a brilliant question, and thank you for that. You know, and I think I alluded to that in 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 my paper in saying that it's absolutely the case that that literature is very invested in unhappiness, and that um, that goes without saying. But it it just um, what got me interested in this topic really was trying to think through the way that literature might reflect on the way in which these very, very dominant happiness discourses are impacting on individuals and the way that they understand and perform their lives. So it's really rather from that perspective that I want to look at it rather than sort of looking at, um, at happy characters or happy plots or those kinds of things. That's not really, it's about the way that happiness scripts inform the way that people perform their lives, understand their lives, um, that's that's more the angle that I'm coming at. It is a, it's a tricky and it's a tricky balance to get without falling back into this trap of just suggesting that the individual just decides for themselves somehow what they understand by happiness when this is quite clearly something that's um, that's incredibly um, culturally formed and it's extremely coercive. So I think it's really important to try to get a handle on it and find a way of of thinking about it and talking about it. And that's what I'm I'm wrestling with. Uh, Willie, you, you had a, um, yeah, unmute, yeah, unmuted yourself there, William, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a question for uh, Enrica. It's uh, about Ungarati, uh, or Ungaretti, sorry, 
And um, rivers during the period of the First World War were often seen as natural frontiers, as something that separated uh, nations. And, and so I was very struck by your argument that Ungaretti sees these as a way of connecting nations. And of course, I think he was fighting on the Isonzo in 1917, which becomes a, a, a major geopolitical issue. So did you sense that there was any engagement with this idea of natural frontiers? Is he trying to do this kind of intellectual work to uh, change how uh, leading geopolitical thinkers th think about rivers uh, in the context of the war? Yes, thank you very much, William, for this. question. I definitely think that Ungretti was trying to engage with a sense of uh, trying to bring together. Um, I'm not sure whether he was thinking about the river, the geophysical space, um, uh, um, and rethink the, ge the, geo, um, the, the geophysical space, but I am and geopolitical space, but I'm definitely sure that he was trying to uh, put forward a new concept of multicultural uh, and transcultural identity that um, would be uh, considered, as I said, like in a kind of a competition with his concept of a performed or the fascist concept of a Italian, you know, like in a very, very strong, you know, like enclosed by national boundaries um, and uh, very, very uh, clearly linguistically uh, defined. Um, so but I, um, I, I, I would not be sure that he was thinking about rethinking you know, like the, the job political space and he was trying to do that uh, in, his, in, in, his poet, in his poetry, yeah. Thank you. Okay, uh, I'll just note that we have a question here from Anne to, uh, to, for Enrica and I'm delighted to see this question actually Anne because I was looking at this in the context as well of Enrica's um, uh, paper in the role of um, place in the space of nomadic uh, memory and because you mentioned you know Sergio the Nile saying particularly rivers and that but Anne has uh, brought this up in another context as well and maybe another angle of this the representation of the river I'm, I'm really delighted to hear this because to me uh, th there's something about water as well in the context of the flow of, of, of humanity and maybe in the nomadic mindset as well uh, the representation of the river reminded me of pantheism so what is transhumans about Ungaretti? Um, so um, I'm not sure how I understand the question. I need to, um, so yes, it's our pantheism, um, I see. Um, well, there is definitely a sense of panism, you know, like a sense of the mansion in nature. Uh, but like, the, I don't know, there's like something, um, um, godly about it, you know, like a search for uh, religion. Uh, there is no specific sense of searching for religion. I'm not sure whether I have understood um, and the, the uh, connection with transhumanism, um, transhumanism in, in the sense of like um, um, uh, augment, uh, augmenting the, the human self through technology in the sense transhumanism or sorry, um, maybe you could explain the question. <laughs> Further. No, it was just a, an association. I wondered um, whether your theory is radicalizing Ungaretti to put it um, polemically, okay? Because I don't want to take up too much time with this, but it seemed to me that the, the, the things that you mentioned, interconnectedness, uh, the image of the water as a connector, 
the notion of duration, which is of course also deeply associated with water. These are actually, you could say, uh, poetic topoi and images that have been around for a very long time. And, and so my question is, are you radicalizing Ungaretti by applying at, uh, this kind of theory to him? No I, don't, I mean, no, I don't think so, because there was um, uh, a constant, uh, I, I mean, Ungretti was picked on, and there was like obviously the uh, idea that he was um, a pro-fascist, as you said, you know, like he was trying to perform the particular identity, and there was a contradiction and a tension that's been highlighted by scholars, for example, Vivian Hand um, talks about this tension and contradiction in his poetry, but there is uh, a sense that um, he, uh, um, he, First of all, um, talked a lot about his connectedness, you know, like with uh, nature, and in particular uh, in 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 relation to, um, for example, the uh, Leopardi's poetry. So, like, there was that he's connected, you know, like with Leopardi and with uh, his idea of infinity, and he. Uh, you know, like he, he, he rethinks, you know, like infinity, he rethinks the idea of the here and now and immersion in nature, uh, but from a postmodern, if you want to, posthumanist pr perspective, he doesn't like linger in this, uh, uh, in this topoi, in a romantic kind of way. But I, I'm sure we can uh, talk uh, about this uh, at another time. And can I take this opportunity to ask a question to Anne? Uh, yes, Enrica, yes. yes. I have one other question. I just, before you start, uh, I, uh, Enrica will ask this question. Then I have another question here to Anne, and uh, then we will just wrap it up. So if we could try and keep it brief to try and keep to the time, that would be wonderful. I have a number of questions. I would love this discussion to go on much, much longer. It's a wonderful start to the conference. So uh, thank you all. But uh, Enrica, yes, by all means, ask Anne, and then we will have uh, Jan Lee, and then we'll just wrap up. So uh, yes, I was. I just um, I was struck by uh, this uh, definition of dystopia and like the new this new uh, take on dystopia. Um, and I was thinking whether this. Um, I, I'm not sure whether Anson if Anne considers this from uh, in a positive perspective as an example of and a quote from from her book, uh, Eigenzeit. So um, a redefinition of, of subjective time uh, and a type of temporal resistance to modernity's regimented time regime, according to your book, or it, it is um, uh, some sort of reactionary uh, attitude that this new dystopian uh, narrators have. Okay, thank you, uh, uh, Enrica, for this question. Um, what I'm suggesting is that this new type of, well, I think it's a new type of dystopian fiction um, um, undermines and overturns the, the modern conception of time that, that, that has been in place since the, eight, since the late 18th century, if you agree with people like Reinhard Koselleck, as I do. Yeah, I think that, in fact, the, the, de the temporalization of history has been a feature at least since the Enlightenment uh, period. And this idea that we can generate meaningful biographies, say, by referring to our meaningful past and projecting ourselves forward to a, a meaningful but open future, that's precisely the type of temporality that this dystopian fiction undermines fundamentally. And of course, it raises then the question, what kind of agency is left? If you cannot, if you cannot really uh, um, imagine a, a different 
utopian future. And of course, the utopian is always an implied dimension, a latent dimension of dystopian fiction, because dystopian writers, the best ones, they are not conservative or right wing, as some of them are, but they are heavily invested in uh, you know, political agencies such as Sibylla Berg, uh, actually, she would be a prime example of that. But what I'm saying is that they, they are querying our um, temporal embedding in reality by showing that kind of the future as an open horizon has shrunk down to, to such a, a, a limit that actually we are now enveloped in what some critics call uh, uh, an extended present without a future horizon. And I think that has a lot of purchase with our own experience of temporality. Is that an answer? Well, definitely, thank you. Thank you. Okay, I have two questions here, one from Joseph and one from Jan Lee, and uh, these are just a question to Anne. Whether the genre of the dystopia has a wider share of interest in other parts of the world than Europe, why or why not? And the second element of this from Joseph, is this new dystopian sense of time linked to a post-Cold War era in which capitalism is only intensifying and there are no political alternatives? So if you yeah. can briefly address those, okay. Anna. The okay. first one can be addressed very quickly. Yes, absolutely. The, this, the dystopian fiction is a transnational genre. I already referred to a couple of non-European examples, especially uh, Preya Akbar's Laila, which is set in, in India. But the, I mean, I don't want to use up time uh, mm -hmm. by going through a long list of, of, of transnational dystopian fiction, but it's a global development, not least because of the implication of this type of genre in environmental fiction. As I said, there's a huge crossover between these genres, okay? So yes, it's transnational. The second question, Joe's question, um, I would say this new type of dystopian fiction is not post-war, but uh, post-1990, so post-globalization and the dismantling of the modern welfare states, of the social democratic vision of society in favor of unbridled capitalism. So indeed, it's, it's also a, a, um, a genre that investigates and, and, and critiques the expansion of, of global capitalism, which no longer has an ideological counterpoint in, in communism or socialism. So absolutely, yes. Is that short enough for you? Yes, that's wonderful, Anne. Thank you very much. And I know we have eaten a little bit into the time, but just means our break might be a little bit shorter. But um, I would suggest we, it's, it's almost 20 past, maybe if we go for 25 past, maybe. I don't know if Anne would be in agreement with that. Okay. As, uh, yes. And um, just to, to thank, I, I, I had lots of things that I wanted to say here, but I, I, I haven't the time, but just to, to start a conference with the universal human right to happiness, uh, varying on to the space of nomadic memory, varying on to cognitive estrangement in the context of um, uh, dystopian, transnational dystopias. I think we've set a wonderful start to this uh, conference today. And just, um, just to, to show our appreciation to our wonderful speakers again, um, uh, Gillian Pai, Enrica Ferrara, and Anne Fuchs. Thank you very much.